0: The afternoon of December 26, 1980, is a moment still ingrained in the minds of many Knoxville, Tennessee residents. It was a Friday, the day after Christmas, and most families had already crowded together, exchanged gifts, shared food, etc. But that holiday joy was quickly ripped away when a six-year-old girl failed to return home from what should have been a quick trip. Avery Vernie Shorts was born on May 18, 1974. Her mother, Hazel Smith, called her Peaches because of her big rosy cheeks, and so did all the residents at the Montgomery Village Housing Project where the family lived in South Knoxville. Hazel stated, quote, She had such a fat, round little face when she was born, I called her Peaches. Because Hazel was unemployed with three young children at the time, she wasn't able to give the gifts she thought they deserved. However, her sister was able to provide at least one present for each child. Peaches asked for, and received, a big doll to play with. And unbeknownst to her family, this was the last Christmas present she would ever receive and the last holiday she would ever spend with her family. Despite being just six years old, in kindergarten at Vestal School, Peaches was incredibly independent. She often looked after her two sisters, aged four and five and roughly every day around the same time, she'd walk alone to the mini-mart around the corner and buy something for her mother. The afternoon of December 26th was the same. Around 4 p.m., Hazel asked Peaches to run to the store and grab her a Coke. That trip usually took about 15 minutes, but after that time and more had passed, Hazel grew concerned. She recalled, quote, I walked down to the store, and the lady there said Peaches was there, but she didn't see where she went when she left. This is the first time she hasn't come home. The response to Peaches' disappearance was swift. Volunteers and officials were sweeping the area within hours of her disappearance. Three officers, along with a member of the volunteer rescue squad, brought three dogs to the scene, including a bloodhound owned by the FBI. They formed a line with volunteers in the woods near the housing project and went door-to-door questioning residents, but nothing of substance was found. One resident thought they saw Peaches and another child talking to a man in a station wagon near the mini-mart, but that later proved to be false. The following day, roughly a hundred people scoured the area, and helicopters were deployed to search from above. Peach's disappearance may not have received the attention and resources it did if it hadn't been for the ongoing cases in Atlanta, where 15 black children had disappeared or been murdered the past several months. The Atlanta child murders took place from July of 1979 to May of 1981. The murders of 28 people, mostly children, would eventually be attributed to serial killer Wayne Williams. In 1980 alone, it's believed he killed roughly 13 children, but at that time, no one knew who was committing the killings. So when Peaches' shorts disappeared in December of that year, despite being over 200 miles away from Atlanta, there was a fear in everyone's mind that the presumed serial killer had come to Knoxville, especially because Peaches was known to everyone in their tight-knit community, and who would want to hurt an innocent six-year-old girl? Only a stranger with evil intentions could be responsible, right? However, the first suspect on police's radar wasn't unknown to the community or Peaches. It was her mother's boyfriend, slash wannabe lover, Mitchell Reed, who also went by Mitchell Webb. He told police he was at the mini-mart about the same time as Peaches, but after interviewing him several times, there wasn't enough evidence to tie him to Peach's disappearance. By day three of the search, four detectives were assigned to the case full-time. One of them told the Johnson City Press, I look at this as a kidnapping. In cases like this, the chief gives us full range to use whatever we need, men, resources, whatever. Another detective stated, I wish we had something good to tell you, but I don't. The longer she's gone, though, the worse it looks. We've got a cold trail. Neighbors were especially appalled by the young girl's disappearance, and a few of their concerns were made apparent by the Knoxville News Sentinel, printed on December 30th, and this is written by Frankie Munger. Montgomery Village, a sprawling 452-unit housing project from which six-year-old Avery Peaches Shorts disappeared Friday, is a well-integrated community. Blacks and whites alike are concerned for her safety. Described as a shy girl who doesn't warm easily to strangers, Peaches is a favorite among the neighbors. Albert C. Stennett, a car mechanic who lives in the apartment next door to Peach's mother, is among the concerned. He already has joined in two search parties and is now trying to organize a regular patrol among housing project residents. Stennett, who is divorced, lives with his four-year-old son, Bobby. He's more concerned for Bobby's safety following Peach's disappearance. When Stennett is away from home, Bobby stays with his grandmother, who also lives in the project. Quote, I'm not too worried as long as he's with someone, but I'm not letting him out by myself anymore, Stennett says. He says there have been similar problems at the community before. A little girl was beat up last year on the road when some guy jumped behind a big bush. We took petitions down at the community center three times to get that bush cut down, but the bush is still there." Many residents theorize that Peaches was probably kidnapped by someone in a car, but Stennis says Peaches wasn't the type of girl who'd get in a car with a stranger. She just wasn't. When Joe Hicks, another Project resident, used to bring fruit around and give it to the kids, all the kids would go up and get apples and oranges and things, but not Peaches. She'd stay back, away from the crowd, and Joe would always have to go over to her and give her a banana. She wouldn't just ask for it. Donna Bogle, carrying her two-and-a-half-year-old daughter Tanya to the same convenience store below the project where Peaches was last seen, says people in the project look out for each other. Depending on the section you live in, unless you make an enemy, people pretty much take care of you. I worry when I see kids out there playing around, young kids, too, without somebody to watch them but it's not unusual, and I can't tell any difference since it happened. Another neighbor, Pam Hunter, walking with her seven-year-old Jeff, says people are doing what they can to help. Quote, I like peaches. Jeff goes to school with her and they play together. We don't know what happened, but everybody's keeping an eye out. She's a good girl. Meanwhile, Mrs. Smith sits at her apartment, waiting to hear from police, who hopefully will bear good news. A friend, Howard Sanford, waits with her, along with her two children, Elwana, four, and Anastasia, five. Quote, I'm just trying to stay busy to keep my mind off of it. There's nothing else to do. People have been real good, calling and coming over to stay with me. Some have been out searching, too, but there's nothing come out of it yet, she says in a quiet voice that fades even more as she talks about peaches. I don't think she would have gotten a car with anybody else. Maybe they offered her some candy or money or something. She went down to that store all the time. I sent her down there that day to get a Coke. I'd always told her not to go with strangers, and I don't think she would have. While she waits for Peach's return, four Knoxville detectives have been assigned to the case, largely because of the numerous reports received by the police department. However, all reports so far have been dead ends, police say. Peaches, who was last seen at 4 p.m. Friday by a clerk at the convenience store on Old Maryville Pike, was wearing blue cotton pants, a blue knit shirt, a bluish-green checkered coat, a maroon toboggan cap, and brown hard-soled shoes when she disappeared. On the same day that this article was printed, a man was searching the area along Joe Lewis Road when he stumbled upon an unopened 16-ounce bottle of Coke. It was found along the same path that Peaches would have traveled to the mini-mart. The cap of the bottle was dented, revealing that the coke may have been thrown from a moving car. However, there were no fingerprints found on the bottle that could directly tie it to Peaches' shorts. This small new piece of evidence rallied officers to launch a massive search on New Year's Day with every available officer. In addition to this new lead, a Morristown psychic joined the investigation. Police Chief Bob Marshall said he didn't believe in the power of psychics, but they weren't going to leave a single stone unturned. This psychic, Bobby Drennan, visited Peach's apartment with police, where Hazel gave him one of her blue sweaters. He then rode around with the clothing, visiting sites of interest with investigators. This psychic would later drop out of the investigation, saying that there was too much publicity about the case. Nearly 300 officers, rescue workers, and volunteers searched two quarries, roughly a mile from the apartment on either side. A blue jacket was found at one location, while a small pair of blue pants, blood-stained panties, and a soda were found at the other. But none of the items belonged to Peaches. Her mother said they were too small. Authorities weren't exaggerating about the thoroughness of their search. They waded through small ponds, deployed helicopters, and even sifted through waste at the Kauai Sewage Treatment Plant. According to the Knoxville News Sentinel, it was one of the largest searches ever mounted in the county, and it only got bigger when the safety director added seven new investigators to the case. On January 13, 1981, around 75 residents of Montgomery Village gathered outside to address the ongoing crime in the community and, of course, the disappearance of Peaches' shorts. Charles Gray told fellow residents, Black or white, rich or poor, if someone steals your TV set, you can buy another one. But if your little Peaches goes to the store and don't come back, you can't go out and buy another one. Local journalist Jim Ballack described the meeting and how residents were working with authorities to prevent another tragedy. Quote, Gary and other Montgomery Village tenants gathered last night to talk with police and officials of Knoxville's Community Development Corp. about the crime problem there. Peaches is the six-year-old Montgomery Village girl who has been missing since the day after Christmas. Since then, Montgomery Village residents have been frightened for their children and for their own lives and property. How bad is the crime problem in Montgomery Village? So bad, said Officer Garland of the Crime Prevention Bureau, that last year there were 218 burglaries reported in the 450-unit public housing complex, almost one burglary for every two apartments. So bad, said one elderly woman in the audience, that residents have to get to their mailbox the minute the mailman carrier arrives, or someone will steal their food stamps and other mail. You don't dare go to the bathroom until the mailman comes, she said. So bad, in fact, that the very building in which these people were meeting has iron bars on the windows to prevent burglary and vandalism. Garland and other members of the Crime Prevention Bureau outlined several steps that can be taken to help reduce crime and make the area generally safer for children. But he stressed, time and again, the police department cannot do it alone. We need your help. You need to get involved. Garland said the eyes and ears of the residents themselves are one of the best aids to police. But you've got to let us know what is going on, he said. In the meantime, he said, the Crime Prevention Bureau is planning to set up a neighborhood watch program where residents will share in keeping an eye on one another's property, developing a mother patrol in which mothers of small children would help watch out for the little ones planning a safe apartment program, which would establish apartments at key geographic locations to which children can go if they need help, and proceeding with Operation Identification in the village. In this program, valuables are permanently marked in the numbers recorded at police headquarters. Police say this program is very helpful in recovering stolen items. Many of the residents seemed enthusiastic about the programs. Gray said he and some neighbors had already started an informal patrol, mainly to keep an eye on children in the area. Several of the residents said the wooded area around the apartment contributes to the problem, providing easy access for trespassers and escape routes for burglars. End quote. By early February of 1981, the reward offered for the return of Peaches and the conviction of her kidnapper surpassed $11,000 this would be over $37,000 today. On the other hand, investigators were starting to give up. Detective Captain James Winston told reporters, I'm at the end of the line with this case. We've tried everything. Helicopters, psychiatrists, psychics, dogs. We had 11 men, and now it's back to me. It's just about at the point of being an open case, and I'll be told to go on to something else. I pretty much think she's dead, don't you? End quote. At this point in the investigation, Detective Winston's number one suspect hadn't changed. According to interviews with Peach's mother, Hazel, she'd had a date with a man named Mitchell Reed. The following evening, a different man Hazel was romantically involved with came over to her apartment. Apparently, when Peach's left and walked to the mini mart, Mitchell drove his car to the store at the same time. Detective Winston stated, He admits he was there, but he says he didn't see peaches. Could a motive be she had a date with another man? Is that enough to kill a child? Hazel Smith, on the other hand, was still holding on to hope that her daughter was still alive. She said, I do believe that my little precious peaches will return to me safe and sound, with the help of God and the thoughtful concern of this community. As long as I have the support of these concerned people, then I know that my peaches will one of these days return back home. Without peaches I am lost in another world, a world of my own that no one can see beyond or into. 10 months after this article was published, Hazel spoke to the New Sentinel about the upcoming anniversary of Peaches' disappearance. She stated, "People don't ask about her anymore. Once in a while they do. I just wait and hope." Hazel was still certain that her daughter didn't voluntarily run off with a stranger. She was the quiet type. She stayed mostly with me she would not have gotten into the car unless she was forced. I have no idea where she is. On top of grieving the disappearance of Peaches, Hazel hinted at the idea that child welfare services were trying to take her two younger daughters away. Quote, they said I haven't been taking care of them and letting them go to school dirty. On January 23rd, 1982, a man was hunting rabbits with his son in a wooded area off Singleton Station Road a dumping area owned by the University of Tennessee at Knoxville, when he came upon a skull and a pair of Mickey Mouse tennis shoes. It was a 15-minute drive from the Mini Mart, where Peaches had vanished. They marked the location before walking to a nearby grocery store and asking a former Blount County Sheriff's investigator to go to the scene and confirm the findings. When Hazel Smith was informed about the shoes, she knew they belonged to Peaches. A cousin had gifted the shoes without laces prior to her disappearance, and it was the shoes that Peaches had been wearing when she vanished. Along with the skull and tennis shoes, authorities found Peaches' hat, jacket, and pants, frozen to her skeletal remains, hidden beneath an old cattle loading pin the following day. Barbed wire pulled from a nearby fence was found wrapped around her neck. The head of UT's anthropology department, Dr. William Bass, examined Peach's remains. He was able to positively identify her through dental records and confirm that her neck had several fractures. After over a year of searching, authorities now had a homicide investigation on their hands. They immediately put together a small team of investigators to work on the case, but nothing at the scene pointed to a specific suspect and nothing of substance would fall into their laps until the summer of 1984, four years after Peaches was kidnapped. A couple inmates at the Morgan County Jail contacted the Knoxville News Sentinel, stating they had information about Peaches. They claimed that another inmate, Frank Tate, had confessed to kidnapping and killing the six-year-old girl. Tate was serving a 10-year sentence for sexual battery on a child under 13 in Blount County. He was previously arrested in 1979 for aggravated sexual battery on a child and was on parole at the time of Peach's abduction. Tate had a reputation among Montgomery Village residents. They remembered him being especially friendly with the children who lived there. However, around the time that Peach's disappeared, Tate stopped visiting the neighborhood. Tate said it was a coincidence because he had moved away to Blount County. When investigators showed up to the jail to interview inmates, the story kind of changed. They wouldn't say that Tate had confessed to killing Peaches, but quote, they feel like this individual, Tate, killed Peaches, and they wanted something done about it. Hazel Smith was interviewed about the new lead and told reporters, I don't know for sure it is him. The detectives came here the other day asking a lot of questions. They said there was some new information. I wish they could just solve this once and for all. I think about it a lot. I can't forget it. Sometimes I'll be somewhere and look at a man, and I'll wonder if he had something to do with it. I wonder if he is the one who got my little peaches. It could be him. He could be the one. But it could be anybody that did it. Anybody. You name it. Who is to say it is that man in prison? I'm not going to say it's that man. I'm not going to say I think he's the one. But if it is him, I hope he rots there. I hope they never let him out. The detectives mentioned Frank Tate's name. I know him, but not personally. I mean, I know who he is, but I don't know him that well. I haven't seen him for a long time. When I was little, his mother or grandmother used to live next door to my grandmother on 4th Avenue. I'm not going to worry about it. I don't know that much. But if he is the one who did whatever he did, I hope he stays there. I hope they never let him out. Four years later... Detective Jim Winston said he was taking one more shot at solving the case, this time with an entirely different suspect. Well, the first one from before. The first one on police's radar. 56-year-old Mitchell Webb, a.k.a. Mitchell Reed. Mitchell had been a primary suspect throughout the years, but his name wasn't made public until March of 1988. He had 11 felonies, all relating to property crime and was currently serving a 20-year sentence for burglarizing a shop in 1983. Detective Winston thought Mitchell was serving a life sentence, but came to find out that he could be paroled within the next few years. This inspired him to ask the Knox County Attorney General's office to bring in a grand jury and see if there's enough evidence against Mitchell to indict him for murder. The murder of Peaches Shorts. After learning about this suspect's identity, the Knoxville News Sentinel conducted a three-week investigation in which they gained access to police files for the first time. After interviewing Hazel Smith, they learned that not only did she and Mitchell know each other, but also the fact that he had threatened her shortly before Peaches disappeared. Mitchell Webb initially agreed to an interview, but changed his mind the day it was supposed to take place. I'm going to read this article in part, which reveals a lot of new information and details about the investigation they conducted, and this is written by Sebastian Dorch. It was a chilly 34 degrees on that day after Christmas seven years ago. Just before 3 p.m., Smith was cooking in her Joe Lewis Road apartment. She heard a knock. Peaches opened the door. It was Mitchell, a man who sometimes calls himself Mitchell A. Reed. He was a familiar sight. He had been by before trying to persuade Smith to go on dates. Smith said she met Mitchell through a mutual friend during the summer of 1980. She said she never dated Mitchell, mostly because of his age. He was a balding, five foot seven man who was 47 back then. Smith, a divorced mother of 3, was 22. He just wasn't my type, she said. Smith said she did let Mitchell buy her things. During the summer of 1980, Smith said Mitchell drove her to a Kmart department store and asked her what she wanted. She picked two outfits. One was lime green, the other a shade of blue. Mitchell also bought Smith an avocado green swimsuit and camera. Smith said she only wore the clothes once. She washed them and hung them on a clothesline to dry. Someone stole them. Smith said she threw the camera away, which she described as being old fashioned. In late August or early September, Mitchell asked for his clothes and camera back. When she told him she didn't have them, he became enraged. He told me that he was going to get even one day. I told him not to threaten me. I asked him, how are you going to get back at me? Are you going to get at me or one of my kids? He said, don't worry about it. Smith said that she was pretty sure she told police about Mitchell's comment, although Detective Winston said she didn't. Smith said she asked Mitchell to buy her a soft drink when he came by on December 26, 1980. Mitchell Webb later told police, I asked her how much it cost. I think she said 58 cents or something like that. He told police he refused to go to the store but left some change next to a refrigerator. He then asked Smith to let him move in with her. Smith said she would think it over, that it would take about a week or so to decide. Mitchell told police, I said, girl, that's too long for me to sleep by myself. So she said, well, it ain't going to hurt you. Smith said Mitchell then stormed from the apartment and slammed the door behind him. He drove about a block to the mini-mart at Joe Lewis Road in Maryville Pike. He bought a cup of coffee and sipped it outside. Peaches changed from a house coat to her winter clothes. She put on blue cotton pants and a blue long-sleeved knit shirt with the picture of a snowman with a carrot for a nose. She pulled on a green checkered coat a maroon toboggan cap, and brown tennis shoes decorated with pictures of Mickey Mouse. Peaches left at 3.30 p.m. from the Mini Mart, but she didn't get to the store until an hour later because she stopped along the way to play with her friends. Clara Coleman, a clerk at the market, told police that Peaches walked into the store and bought a 16-ounce soft drink. Peaches left at about 5 p.m. Smith was concerned because Peaches was taking so long. I knew it would take but five minutes to walk there and back. She called the police and reported Peach's missing at 5.48 p.m. Saturday evening, the police chief assigned Winston to the case. Winston remembers it well. He was watching the evening news in the police department's detective bureau. There was a story about Peach's disappearance. I remember saying to myself, Boy, this is bad. A dispatcher called over his two-way radio to assign him to investigate. Winston drove to Smith's apartment. He asked her what happened. She told him, he asked her if she had any boyfriends. She gave him the name of four, Mitchell Webb being one of them. In parentheses, Smith said Saturday that she knew Mitchell, but he was never her boyfriend. Smith told Winston about how upset Mitchell became when she refused to let him move in with her. Soon after, Winston headed to Mitchell's apartment in the 400 block of Daylily Drive. Mitchell met Winston at the door. He told him he knew the police would be looking for him. He invited Winston inside and introduced him to a woman he described as his girlfriend, Mary Elliott. They chatted for a while. Winston said this month that Mitchell was always helpful to police. Mitchell gave an official statement of his whereabouts on the day Peaches disappeared on December 29th. In a taped interview, Mitchell said he never saw Peaches while he was at the Mini Mart. He said that after drinking his coffee, he drove to Central Street to shoot dice. He said he never could find his buddies to play the game. He began driving around the area when he decided to telephone Elliot at her apartment at 5.30 p.m. He asked her if she needed anything. She said no. Mitchell called again at 6.10 p.m., asking her if she needed anything. This time, she said she had a toothache and needed some medicine for the pain. Mitchell picked up some Excedrin and Origel, a toothache medicine. Elliot said he came by her apartment at 6.50 p.m. Mitchell said he talked with Elliot a few minutes and then headed for Smith's apartment. He said he noticed police officers milling around Montgomery Village. He stopped and asked two boys what was going on. They said Hazel's little girl was missing, Mitchell told police, so I said, well, I'm going down there. Mitchell walked in and saw a police officer questioning Smith. Smith said Mitchell was not acting like himself. Smith said he was acting real weird, like he had done something. Smith said that Mitchell's hands trembled so badly that he could hardly hold his coffee cup. A police officer left the apartment but forgot his baton. Mitchell insisted he return it, Smith said. Smith told him not to worry about it, but he continued to insist. When he left after the officer, Smith said she turned to her friend, Glanesha Harshaw, who was sitting on the couch, and commented on Mitchell's behavior. Smith said Harshaw noted it also. Mitchell returned to Smith's apartment. He said Smith left for about 15 minutes, and she returned he told her he hoped the police found peaches. Elliott said Mitchell returned to her apartment at 7.30 p.m. with a bag of marijuana. He left about 30 minutes later. She said she saw Mitchell again at 4.30 p.m. the following day. He left and returned December 28th. She said Mitchell beat her. On Monday, Elliott and Mitchell were interviewed at the police department. Elliott took a polygraph test, which showed her statements as truthful. Mitchell refused the test, saying that his mother told him to never get hooked up to a machine. L. Wood Shorts, Peach's father, was also interviewed that Monday. He and Peach's mother had been divorced for about a year. Shorts said he hadn't seen his daughter since November. The day Peach's disappeared, he had a friend drive him to Montgomery Village. I went door to door and stayed out a good while, and then I realized that there was nothing I could do but just wait and pray to see if she was alright, he told police. Schwartz returned home. He was unable to sleep. I didn't feel like I could do anything since they didn't have any leads to go on, so I just sat there all night and waited," he said in a statement. Schwartz took a polygraph test that Sunday and passed. Some leads pointed away from Webb. A woman identified as Faye Ewing called the police at 9pm December 31st to say she'd seen peaches at a Taswell Pike Kroger store. She said she saw the girl with two black women in a checkout line in front of her. Police arranged a meeting with Smith and Ewing to talk over the story. Ewing, who had met Smith and Peaches before the disappearance, told police that Peaches smiled at her in the checkout line. One of the women then whispered something to Peaches, who then looked at the floor. Ewing said she told her husband about seeing Peaches. He told her to call police. Following another lead, Detective Bell and Officer Gatlin met with a woman identified as Laura Moore in South Knoxville on January 2, 1981. Moore told officers that her nine-year-old daughter saw Peaches the evening of the disappearance. The child told police she saw Peaches come into the laundromat next to the mini-mart between 4 and 5 p.m. She said she spoke to Peaches. As Peaches left, a large man stood by the door. The child could not give police a description of the man. The girl walked outside and saw Peaches talking to a man in the white Volkswagen. She could not describe the driver. The child's statements were backed up by Kathy Church, a resident who drove the child to the laundromat. She gave police a statement similar to the child's. On January 3rd, Jerry Downs, a friend of Mitchell Webb, talked with police. He said Mitchell claimed he tossed Peaches' body off Kate's Bridge, which runs over the Little River in South Knox County. Downs took a polygraph test. It showed that he was telling the truth. When Brassfield heard the results of the polygraph exam, he asked the Knox County Rescue Squad to drag the river. Dogs and a helicopter were used in the search. No body was found. Some leads made police suspect Mitchell Webb. Larry Bray told police that Harshaw introduced him to Smith on Christmas Day of 1980. Bray said that he later spent the day with Smith and her children. The following day, he left Smith's apartment and visited Harshaw at her apartment. Mitchell Webb happened to be there. Harshaw teased Bray about sleeping with Hazel Smith the night before, Bray told police. Bray's statements does not show how Mitchell Webb reacted to Harshaw's teasing. Smith, in a taped interview, said she slept with Bray. She said he left the following day. I want to break down this article a little bit since it's kind of confusing with all of the names newly mentioned, but basically, Peach's mother slept with a man on Christmas Day, and the next evening, the day that Peach has disappeared, that man was teased about sleeping with Peach's mother directly in front of Mitchell Webb, who was actively trying to move in with Hazel Smith and establish a romantic relationship. And by that point, Mitchell had already threatened Hazel Smith because she didn't return the items he had bought her. So, I feel like after he heard Smith had slept with another man and was further rejected when he asked to move in, that could have been the last straw and a reason in his mind to snap and take revenge by murdering Smith's oldest daughter, Peaches. Four weeks after this lengthy article was published, Mitchell Webb was interviewed twice over the phone by reporters and denied his involvement in Peach's murder. He also denied ever-threatening Hazel Smith, saying he had, quote, no right to threaten Hazel over about 10 or $12 worth of stuff. He also denied becoming enraged when he learned Smith had slept with another man, stating, I don't get upset like that over a woman. On the streets, you get women for a dime a dozen, for a beer or sandwich or something like that. Despite the momentum this exposé seemingly brought, Mitchell Webb was never charged with Peach's murder. A grand jury never indicted him. The case stalled and the media coverage stopped because there wasn't any new developments. In May of 2010, the Knoxville News-Sentinel covered the case once again. This article dropped some shocking news. Authorities were going to try and charge their number one suspect one more time nearly 30 years after Peaches was abducted. Apparently, Knoxville police thought he was dead, but journalists were able to track him down to a nursing home, where his health was quickly dwindling. They questioned him for the first time in 20 years, and his story was still the same. It wasn't me. I never killed anybody in my life, man, woman, or child. After the interview, detectives said he didn't have much to say. He recalled it fairly well. He's changed his story on some things, but he's still adamant he was not involved. He told us we're barking up the wrong tree. Now I want to read a section of this article by Matt Lakin, which gives some new insight into what police found at the crime scene and why they were so sure that Mitchell Webb slash Mitchell Reed is the killer. Quote Finding Peach's body gave the case new life. Police had already interviewed more than 100 people, but they kept coming back to one man. Mitch Reed. The body lay about a 15 minute drive from Montgomery Village and within about a mile of the house in Rockford where Reed's parents lived. Its condition offered little to work with a decomposed skeleton and a rusty 9 gauge wire. The wire came from the UT Farm, a brand made in the 1940s. Winston believes Peach's killer strangled her by hand in the car, then drove to the farm and coiled the wire around her throat. To make sure she was dead. The wire yielded no fingerprints. Any blood had dried up long ago. Winston doubts even modern forensics could do much more with evidence exposed for so long. Police knew Reed's name long before Peaches disappeared. He'd spent much of his life in and out of jail for thefts and burglaries, all the way back to the age of 15. Officers questioned him just a year before in another death. The strangling of 62-year-old Emma Brewer, in her Western Avenue apartment, but never filed charges. Mitchell Reed didn't mind talking to detectives. He enjoyed being the center of attention, Winston said. He was such a rat, always smoking and grinning. Life was just a big con game to him. You could tell by the gleam in his eye. He would talk with us for hours about his life, his job, his criminal record, but he never would admit to hurting a child. A dog found Peaches' scent in the Cadillac, the one Reed used to give Smith and her children a ride. Once, Winston thought he had his break. A boy told police he'd seen Peaches outside the store, talking to a man who looked like Reed with a brown car. We almost had enough, but he recanted, Winston said. He was just a kid, and we always thought his parents might have pressured him to change his story. Knoxville police never made an arrest in Peaches Short's death. The department took Jim Winston off the case later that year. Mitchell Reed went to jail again in 1983 for burglary of a rental shop. A 1985 conviction sent him to prison for the next decade and a half. He last faced a judge in 2002 when he pleaded guilty to misdemeanor assault on a child. Mitchell Reed spends his days now in a bed or a wheelchair at the NHC Healthcare of Fort Sanders Nursing Home, sometimes on a breathing machine. He can barely stand on his own, sometimes barely wrap his fingers around a cigarette. He jokes with nurses and waits for visits from his wife. He can't remember his age, 77. He can't remember his birthday, but he remembers a name, Peaches. I knew Peaches, he said. I can't say I didn't, because I did. What happened to her? Emma Brewer's name gets no reaction, at least not at first. I've been there, he said. I've been in that house, but I ain't killed nobody. Mention Winston's name and the memories start coming back. They couldn't get nothing on me, he said. That's why I gave them a hard time. A cop might say anything to get you to talk. If they say I did it, let them try me. His wife, Mary, remembers Peaches, too. She lived just around the corner from the girl. Reed often stayed with her there. She talked to police, then passed a polygraph test. Ask about her husband today, and she hesitates. I won't say he didn't do it, she said. He never talked to me about it. If he did it, he knows. God knows who did it. God knows, and he knows. Another section of this article dives into Mitchell Reed's behavior when questioned by authorities about another murder a year prior to Peach's disappearance. Quote Mitchell Reed knew how to fend off any question, even under threat of the electric chair. Knoxville Police Department Sergeant Ray Perry, now retired, faced him across the table a year before Peach's shorts disappeared. Emma Truett Brewer, 62, didn't show up for church on Sunday in December 1979. Her granddaughter found her dead inside her apartment on Western Avenue, her hands tied behind her back, a pair of stockings and an extension cord wrapped around her neck. Perry learned Reed had worked for Brewer as a handyman and lived with her not long before her death. He'd hitchhiked to Knoxville the day she died and admitted he stood on Brewer's porch that night. Just to say hello, he explained. This guy didn't get shook up, Perry said. He didn't get excited. He didn't get mad. I showed him some pictures he didn't want to look at, and he just sort of turned his head. I showed him the extension cord. I put it in his lap. He just sort of got a funny look. When he left the police department that day, I told him, I hope I hear you went out and hung yourself. You can get away with it now, but one day you've got to stand before your maker. You won't get out of it then. Perry never made an arrest in Brewer's death. Years later, he stood on a corner downtown and heard a familiar voice call his name. I turned and there was Mitchell, Perry recalled. Same as ever. James Winston, who's long been retired from Knoxville PD, spoke again about the murder of Peaches Shorts in February of 2019. He said, I did have strong feelings about the case, and I'll never forget her. I just wanted to do it for the community. I wanted to solve it. I wanted to put this guy, the suspect, in the electric chair. I think at one time we had myself and ten detectives. We met daily. We went over evidence. We talked with the community. We canvassed the area. We did everything we could. We were within a mile of the area her body was found, but we never had any luck. I put it together that this boyfriend was a major suspect in the case, Mitchell Reed. We ran down every lead we had. No other abductions. No other molestation of children. It had to be him. He beat the system, I guess you'd have to say, on this case. We couldn't break him. He was a sly con man. December 26th of this year will mark 43 years since Peach's Shorts was abducted and murdered. And her killer, if it was Mitchell Reed, will never be brought to justice. He passed away years ago without ever being charged or convicted. Thank you all so much for listening, happy October, and I hope you all have a good day, evening, or night. Goodbye.